Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, specifically chapter 21 and following. We're going to be in Exodus 21 through 24 this morning. So keep your Bible open. I remind you or inform you, I remind those of you that have been with us these last few years as members here at Dawson or those who are attending Dawson. January 2021, I stood before you and said in January, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. And we started in a series in the book of Exodus where we started with the Israelites captive under the tyrannical uh, grip of Pharaoh. God sets his people free, brings them through the Red Sea. We paused the series at the end of May of 2021. Last year, January 2022, I said, turn with me to the Ten Commandments. For the next few months, we walk through the Ten Commandments. We pause the series at the end of May. We come back now and through the rest of the months, we will complete our journey through the book of Exodus. We come now to a unique part of the book of Exodus, especially as Christians. Exodus 21 issues a, a new place in God's revelation, what we know is the book of the covenant, where God is giving to Moses and to the people of God very specific stipulations of what it looks like to walk in freedom. Many of you have, over the course of your Christian journey, have, have read the Bible faithfully. And one of the ways that you've done that is to be able to think, uh, what's a Bible reading plan? And January is a good time to start anew and afresh. And so I imagine some of you have said, I'm, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I'm going to read through the Bible in the next two years. I'm going to read through the Old Testament in, in these coming months, in the coming year. And you start in January and there's some familiar greatest hits. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, there are contours of familiarity to what you might hear and read. You've got creation in Genesis. You've got the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis. You've got Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And you're walking through these patriarchs. The baton is passed to the book of Exodus. And there, again, they're familiar threads. Sunday school stories, vacation Bible school stories, even stories if you didn't attend any of those, that they're a part of the fabric of our very nation. Familiar turns. God appearing to Moses, saying to him through a burning bush, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. and Ten signs that God gives to, to loosen his grip and to loosen his heart. Pharaoh lets the people go and he chases after them and, and God parts the Red Sea and the giving of the Ten Commandments. All of this is familiar. And then one morning in January, probably toward the end of January, you're going to wake up and you're going to go to your Bible reading plan and you're going to read Exodus 21 starting in verse 1. Now, these are the rules that you have set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. And you're introduced to the slavery stipulations in that ancient Near Eastern context for the Israelites. And you ask yourself as you're reading this, what exactly... Do I make of these? What exactly do I do with this? So you move on. 
Verse 17, Exodus 21, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. You look to your kids sitting to your left or your right and you wonder, what does this mean? And then you keep on, verse 18, Exodus 21, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoor with a staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. How does this apply? You think to yourself. How, how much of the specific stipulations do I then in turn apply to, to my life as a Christian trying to follow God here. But you keep on as you want to read the word of God and sit under the authority of God's word. You go to the next chapter, Exodus 22, verse 25. If you should lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. And then you're thinking about mortgage rates and you're thinking about uh, Christians who are in the uh, banking world here and what does this mean or not mean to them? And then you go to Exodus 23, verse 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor. Of what you sow in the field, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. How many of you... I've calendared the Jewish festivals to keep this year. What do we do with the specific festivals that we find in Exodus 23? Or, or go to Exodus 23 verse 19 as you're reading in your copy of God's word. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know what you're having for lunch, but I dare say this was not in the recipe. Now, I, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm not trying to be trite. I'm trying to be reflective and descriptive of what many Christians face when they want to take God's word serious and they come to this section and sections like it that are the Old Testament law given to the people. We are a church that takes God's word serious. We are a church that in, actually, in our theological vision, how, how are we going to be found faithful as God's people? First tenet, God's word is our authority. So we look to the word of God for guidance. We look to the word of God for authority. But how do we take these specific passages in this section of scripture that are reflective of other sections in the Old Testament law and how do we interpret them and apply them to your life, to my life, to our church? I think that's a very important question. And I think many Christians assume that they know exactly what's going on in this passage and how to do that. I think oftentimes many churches fail to, to adequately say what's going on here in this moment and what is distinct here. How do we apply this to our lives to be found faithful as God's people? And so many times I myself know what it is to read these passages and feel thoroughly unequipped to know what to do with them or what not to do with them. And maybe you've been there. So most of the time, you know what Christians do? At best, they skim these sections. Most often they just skip these sections. But if we would have ears to hear and a heart that is open, God is speaking to us even through the law that he gave to 
to the Israelites. Let's be good readers of this section of scripture here. How do we do that? A couple of principles. Let's do this real quickly here. First principle, the law was given to show God's people how to live well, how to flourish in a particular moment in time. So this section of scripture and other sections like it, known as the law, the book of the covenant, the law, this law was given to show God's people how to live well in a particular moment in time. It's not given in a historical vacuum. It's given in a very specific place where the Israelites have been set free. And God wants them to live as free people. They've been set free from bondage here and they're told what to do. They have been a people that have had no rights. They've had no freedom for over 400 years. And now they have freedom, they have rights, they've been set free as God's people and they're establishing themselves as a nation. And when you understand that background here, these laws do not seem tedious. They seem life-giving because they're instructive. They're instructive for the people of God to flourish in this moment in time. So you go back to the law, Exodus 22. Let's just look at those passages, for instance. Think about how the Israelites, who have been personal property of Pharaoh, would have heard Exodus 22 in their moment, in their time. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If, the, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Now, again, we're tempted to skip over this. We're tempted to skim over this. We're tempted to say, nothing to see here, nothing to hear. This seems odd. This seems archaic. And we miss that for over 400 years, the Israelites were personal property. And now for the first time in over 400 years, they are going to have personal property and they've got to understand what are the ways that we are going to live in a community that flourishes because we are going to be a sinful people and there is going to be theft. And there are gonna be issues that happen. And God doesn't say to the Israelites, hey, figure it out. Because you know what that would lead to? It would lead to anarchy, to brutality, the survival of the fittest, but that's not what God does to the people. He gives them boundaries for their flourishing that are specific to their time and their place, which guess what is obviously not Birmingham, Alabama in the year 2023. First principle, the law was given to show God's people how to live well in a particular moment in time. Second, the law was given at a different redemptive moment in time. This can be an error that we have as Christians. When we read the Old Testament law, forgetting that the law was given at a different stage and a different moment in the history of redemption, the covenant that God confirms with his people, it is shown how that is going to happen in Exodus chapter 24. And you remember how that happens? It's with the slaughtering of a bull on the altar. 
And then Moses takes the blood of the bull and scatters the blood, sprinkles the blood over all the people, all of the Israelites. So the sinful Israelites who are not going to be able to perfectly keep this law, that's going to become very evident when you're tracking with the Israelites. They're not going to perfectly keep this. They can't. God confirms it by the slaughter of an animal. The blood is sprinkled over the people. Well, obviously, not a single person here was tempted this morning to get up and say to their mom or to their dad or to their brother or to their sister or to their friend, hey, did you bring the bull? Did you bring the animal? Did you bring the animal sacrifice? Not one of you had an idea that today I was going to slaughter an animal and then and start splurting blood all over you here. Why? Because we are a new covenant people. But, but hear me. We are only made right by God by our hearts being covered by the blood of a sacrifice. But it's not the blood of a bull. It is not the blood of an animal. When Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples in Luke chapter 22, and they're having the the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what he said? He's got the bread and he's got the wine. He's got the bread, he's got the cup. And he says in this moment here in Luke 22, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So as new covenant Christians here, we don't bring a bull to worship. We don't bring an offering of an animal sacrifice. Why? Because once and for all, that sacrifice has been made and that sacrifice is Jesus. And so the law of Moses that is guiding the Israelites is going to be replaced by a greater law, the law of Christ that is written not on stone tablets, not codified in in the book of Exodus or Leviticus, but it is written on our hearts. Jeremiah prophesied this. One of the most famous Old Testament passages, Jeremiah is looking ahead in chapter 31 of that day where a new covenant will be established. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. I love this fatherly language. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's where we are in the history of redemption in Exodus 21. When my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put a law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You know who that is talking to? It's talking to us. We're the the new covenant recipients of of a law that is the law of Christ that is written by the spirit of God that dwells in us to convict us, to confirm us, to comfort us, to guide us. So we don't look back to the law of the Old Testament as our rules and regulations of what it means to follow God faithfully. No, the Spirit of God opens our hearts to listen to the Word of God so that we can pursue the will of God in our lives. Third principle. Third principle. The law of Christ has now replaced the Old Testament law in our lives. Real quickly, in the book of Galatians, you've got Christians living in the region of Galatia who are saying to those that are attending the churches that Paul has established, guess what, guess what? If if you want to be a Christian, 
You need to receive Jesus as your savior, but you also need to keep the Old Testament law. You got to do both. And Paul says, heavens no. Heavens no. I, I forbid you to think in that way, Paul says, with the strongest language. He actually says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. So as Christians, we live under the new covenant and we're called through the Holy Spirit to follow the law of Christ, which is not a set of rules and regulations for every specific thing that might occur in our lives. No, the spirit of God that dwells in us illumines the word of God so that we can know the will of God. You want some cliff notes for this? You remember the scribe that came up to Jesus and he wants to trap Jesus by asking him this trick question. Okay, we've got the Old Testament law, Jesus. You're a great rabbi. Let's get, what's the, what's the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus summarizes the spirit of the law in this way that we read in verse 29 of Mark 12. The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus summarizes the Old Testament law by giving us these two principles that the Old Testament law, it points us, it points us to the love of God and the love of neighbor. And you as a Christian that have the spirit of God in you leads you to love him, to love others. So here's the question. What do we do with Exodus 21? What do we do with Exodus 22? What do we do with other Levitical laws and dietary laws and and ceremonial laws? Do you remember that scene in Dead Poets Society? Got Robin Williams, he's playing the English teacher, Mr. Keating. They're reading the introduction of how to interpret poetry. And he tells these young men, he's reading this sort of boring, lifeless interpretation that that takes out all the joy of literature. And he asks each of them just to rip out the pages. Should I, as your pastor, in light of what Jesus said, said to all of you, get the pew Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 21, and then on three, let's start ripping out pages. If I did, it'd be my last Sunday here. (laughs) It's been a great five and a half years. Well, of course not, but, but why not? Of course not, but why not? Is, is it simply just propriety, tradition, or is there something for us to hear and heed in these Old Testament laws that are still instructive for us? Paul, writing in Romans chapter 15, he sums it up this way. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Well, Paul, what does this look like? Though through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So now we come back to Exodus 21, understanding that it was written for a particular people at a particular place. We understand our relationship to the law as new covenant Christians. And now we go back to the law and realize that the law points us to the unchanging character and unchanging will of God. God's will in the law is to a specific nation at a specific moment in time, 
and those specific conditions no longer apply to us. But we still can see the character of God and we can still see the will of God to love him and to love neighbors in specific situations. So the civil regulations of the law, they they do not apply to us. Uh, the, The dietary regulations do not apply to us. But there is a moral principle behind the law that we need to hear and heed as we walk through the Bible. Let's do some for instances here. Two two case studies. How about that? So first is Exodus 21. Will you turn? Will you see in verse 28 through 29? This seems to be a very skimmable, very skippable passage in your Bible reading plan. All about oxen and what to do. So, So if you've got an ox who gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Here's an instance where the owner's not liable. But verse 29, on the other hand, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and more than that, the owner shall be put to death. Now it's easy for us to read this and say, nothing to see here. I doubt anyone in this room was wondering what to do with your oxen grazing in your backyard this morning. Just in case you're wondering, HOAs look down upon oxen in suburban backyards. I mean, so, so this seems very strange to us. It seems very removed from us. But again, if we listen to this passage, we see very specific examples of loving neighbor. There, there are times in life where accidents happen. They, they happened with the people of God, wandering in the wilderness, setting up a nation. There are times where there are accidents that happen, and guess what? The, the two parties part their ways, and no one is at fault. But there are other times, in this specific instance here, where, where the accident can occur and someone be responsible and culpable. God is saying that the person that is culpable is the person who failed to do what he should have done, but failed to take steps that could have prevented what this owner should have seen and could have seen. Do you, do you remember the Andy Griffith, the Andy Griffith episode where Barney becomes sort of a, a, a realtor to Andy? So Andy is going to sell his house and Barney's giving him advice. At the outset of the episode, Opie, Andy's son, wants to sell a bike to a friend. And Andy overhears it and Opie is, the bike is broken. And the, the bike has seen its better days. But Opie's lying about it and Andy catches him and teaches him in that moment the lesson that you can't, you can't hold back that this bike is broken and sell it to somebody lest you're lying and ultimately they're harmed by you holding back that information. Lesson learned for Opie. The show goes on. Andy's showing someone around, potential buyer around the house. And if you remember the scene, uh, Opie's by the side of Andy and and. Uh, Andy's going through saying, here's the great things about the house. Here's the great things about the house. Here's the great things about the house. And Opie's chiming in saying, hey, dad, why didn't you tell him about this that's broken? Why didn't you tell him about this that's broken? Why didn't you tell him about this that was broken? And the lesson 
is learned by the dad. In life, there are times that we are called to love our neighbor. And loving our neighbor is looking ahead proactively to potentially see how our negligence could actually harm them. And to love them is to love them in the specific. So often we talk about love of neighbor and we talk about it just merely hypothetical, merely at a level of, of just sentimentality. But that's not what love is. Love is in the specifics. So if I've got a tree in my backyard, and the tree's on the property line, and I begin to notice that one season it doesn't bloom and dormant and next season doesn't bloom again. I I realize that 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 tree in my backyard is dead. And that tree on the property line right there, it gets blown over by one of these Alabama thunderstorms and it lands on my neighbor's house. I haven't loved my neighbor well by my negligence. I haven't loved my neighbor well by, by seeing what I could have and should have been able to prevent. And so the oxen Goring someone seems really, really remote, but if we have ears to hear, it's a little bit closer to our own lives as we're called to love our neighbor in the specifics. One other case study. Oh, we could spend hours doing this, but hopefully this gives us some tools to read these texts and read them well. Exodus 23, verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Some things are instructive here. There's some parts of the law that we we don't have enough information about. You know, for more than 2,000 years, people have tried to understand exactly what is being prohibited by the boiling of a young goat in its mother's milk. There's some scholars who said, well, maybe, maybe speculating that the Canaanite religions around them would do this practice. And one of the ways the Israelites would set themselves apart is by not doing this practice. But here's a place where we just don't have the clarity to know exactly what's behind this. But if we go back to this passage, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the, mother, the house of the Lord your God. Now, you don't have to be a farmer to heed this passage. You, you don't have to bring in the harvest to heed this passage. There's just three festivals that this comes on the heels of in Exodus 23, the unleavened bread festival, the festival of the harvest, the festival of ingathering, and God's calling the Israelites, hey, you've been set free. God has taken you out of bondage. Don't be dour. Don't be somber. We're going to celebrate this. And I'm going to actually uh, bring into the worship of the people of God rhythms of celebration. And you're going to come together and you're going to be able to celebrate what I have done in the past that makes all the difference for your present and your future. And when you do that, don't bring your leftovers. Bring the best, the first fruit of your offering. Now this, again, might seem odd because we're not talking about festivals that we're going to here, but we are a people that have been set free from our sin. We are a people that are called and and given words to celebrate a God who has moved in us, that has brought us from slavery 
to freedom. So we gather to worship. It is a way that we take that step of celebrating what we've received in Christ. But more than that, we are called to bring the best of our first fruits as an offering to him. Let's just imagine Tuesday night you're going to host at your house the most influential person in the state of Alabama. You've got Governor Kay Ivey that's coming over to your house that's going to eat with you. Actually, you've got Nick Saban that's going to come to your house and eat with you. So, okay. You got Coach Saban or you got Governor Ivey. Okay, so there, you get the point. And so they're there. They're in your house. You know what you're not going to do? You know what no one in the sanctuary is going to do? No one in the sanctuary is going to come up to that distinguished guest and say, Two nights ago, we had Papa John's. And I can heat up some leftover cheese pizza or pepperoni pizza. What would you choose? You're not going to do that. That poppy seed chicken that was really, really good last night, you're not going to go up to him and say, this is my, this is my wife's favorite dish to prepare. It comes from her great-grandmother, and in 35 seconds, you can have a taste of it. You're not going to warm up leftovers, are you? And so if we have ears to hear as we listen to this passage here, it is we as Christians are called to bring our best as an offering to him. And so if we listen to this passage here, the passage begins to ask us a question. Are we giving our best to the Lord? Are we giving the best of our time, the best of our resources? Or are you giving your leftovers? reheating, warming up, what you've done for something else and someone else, or or, or we think about our finances. Are we giving to the Lord at the end of the month just the leftovers of what we didn't spend? Or are we prioritizing our budget in such a way that at the first fruits, off the top, that we give to the Lord sacrificially and joyfully? But more than that, it's not just about our finances. We can think about our time and our resources. We can think about things that occur in the life of the church that do not happen unless this church in so many ways gives of their best. Think about last week, we had over 400 students, chaperones, small group leaders right here in the sanctuary. The joy of that worship service of D-Now that so many of you were able to experience. You know how that happens? A lot of first fruit giving. That's how that happens. 25 homes that are completely open Friday night and Saturday and into Sunday for these students to stay in, first fruit giving. Uh, Over 60 leaders who invest of their time to be able to pour into life of those students, first fruit giving. You know how that happens? It's, It's people that are here in this very room that give of their tithes and offerings so that we have a student ministry and student ministry leaders who are first class, who love the Lord and love our students, first fruit giving. So many of you are just a part of life groups. You came from life groups taught and led by faithful women and men, some of which have given of their time collectively months, even years of preparation and prayer for what you just experienced. First fruit giving. 
Oh, we could go on and on. I will not. But we stop with the question, how is God calling me? How is God calling us to give of our time and of our resources? The Old Testament law, of course, it is to God's people in a particular time, particular place. But as we listen, the Spirit of God begins to speak to me in my time, in my place. So the law bears witness to what God values and the detail of the situation, that, that's different, but his character, his will, it's unchanging to us. So as we read the law, we're reminded of a simple truth. God is in the details. He was in the details of their life and he is in the details of your life. Nothing is off limits, your relationships, your families, your work, your finances. God is in the details. So the question isn't, does God care about the details? The question is, is do I care what God thinks about the details of my life? Am I living in light of his unchanging character and his unchanging will to love him, to love others, not with the leftovers, but with our best? Let us pray.